Okay, let's um, continue. Someone left a black pen up here, a Bic Atlantis. So here it is, and uh, this also somehow got left. Thank you. Okay, wow. All right, um, so, uh, so far what we've looked at is Eden as a sanctuary slash temple slash tabernacle, um, and of course it, it is a garden. And Adam was to extend Eden to the ends of the earth until God's glory, his presence, and the boundaries of Eden fill the earth. That answers uh, some of our questions as to why the new heavens and earth in chapter 21-1 of Revelation is equated with a garden and with a sanctuary or a temple. Um, so now we're going to work uh, on how is that developed in Scripture. We're going to do what I would call a biblical theology of the temple, and we're also in the process of that going to look at why is uh, the new heavens and earth also called a city and then equated with a bride. So we're going to go for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and then we'll have 15 more minutes of um, questions. Feel free to write your questions down. Um, all right, so after Adam's fall and expulsion from the Garden Temple, humanity becomes worse and worse and worse, and as we know, it's eventually destroyed by flood. And um, as uh, that happens, only Noah and his family are preserved. Uh, there may be some intimation that the ark itself was conceived of as a beginning form of a temple. Uh, there are a few people who contend this. Meredith Klein is one. Uh, some other scholars have contended this. I'm not sure myself, but I'll give you the reasons that they think even the ark of Noah was sort of the um, temporary temple uh, during the flood. Number one, the word for ark in Greek uh, is the same word for the ark of the covenant uh, in the Holy of Holies. Secondly, uh, the ark had three sections to it. Noah's ark had three sections. Well, so does uh, the temple, as we've seen. And thirdly, whenever you find specific architectural designs and details in Scripture, it's virtually always uh, about a temple. And so you get a lot of those detailed architectural instructions with the ark, don't you? And then, um, fourthly, of course, God's presence is there with uh, Noah in the ark. And Noah even functions as a priest when he gets out of the ark. Remember, he builds an altar and sacrifices. And furthermore, remember, right when the animals get onto the ark, there's a distinguishing between clean and unclean animals. First time in Scripture that happens. And the next time it happens is with the temple. You've got to distinguish between clean and unclean animals in the temple to offer good sacrifices. So it's, it's possible. But nevertheless, um, uh, after the disobedience of Noah and his sons, uh, if God had started some sort of temple building aspect uh, with them, uh, it, it closes down. God chooses Abraham and his descendants, Israel, to reestablish the temple. Now, something that's very interesting, I don't know if you, many of you have read commentaries on uh, Genesis, but it's very interesting that 
they'll comment on chapters 1 through 11, and then they'll start chapter 12, and it's like a new book. It says, now we're starting over again. And there's not a lot of integration of the themes between 1 through 11 and 12. And um, I, I think that's a mistake because I think they are closely integrated, and we're going to see how. Um, the commission of Genesis 1.28, and this is the beginning reason how, that commission is given to Abraham. Remember the language, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed. That's the language of Genesis 1.28, right? I'll bless you, uh, increase, um, subdue, uh, uh, possess the gate of the enemies. Your seed will possess the gate of their enemies. Well, that's equivalent to subduing and ruling. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This whole worldwide uh, uh, scope. Remember, they were to fill the earth in Genesis 1.28. God expresses the universal scope of the commission by underscoring the goal is to bless all the nations of the earth. And so it's natural that in chapter 12, 1-3, the beginning of this, what some see to be a new section that seems to be unrelated to the previous, that God commands Abram, go forth from your country, and most translations have, you will be a blessing. The Hebrew doesn't say that. The Hebrew says, be a blessing. In other words, take on this commission of Adam. And and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So, as we look at this, it's not just Abraham who gets the commission from Genesis 1.28. But, uh, and there's the commission, but Noah got it first as the next person after Adam. God blessed Noah and his son, said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly, multiply in it. So, Noah is a second Adam figure. Notice I say a second Adam figure. Uh, I'm not going to call him... Uh, I'm going I'm to call him an Adam figure because Christ is both second Adam and last Adam. Okay, So we don't want to confuse these figures that are like Adam with how Christ becomes a second Adam slash last Adam. But they are Adam figures. The mantle of Adam, the commission is put upon them. And so we've just seen how that is the case with... Um, with uh, Abraham and that continues with Abraham I'll multiply you exceedingly make you exceedingly fruitful Um, and then with um, uh, I I believe this is Isaac I'll greatly bless you greatly multiply your seed as the stars of uh, the heavens Um, your seed will possess the gate all the nations again this worldwide (coughs) scope is mentioned again Isaac uh, I'll be with you And the first time that we get what I call the divine accompaniment uh, formula, God is going to be with them. Now, now that's different than with Adam and Noah. He didn't say, I'll be with you. Uh, It's implied with Abraham and and clarified in the other patriarchs that God will be with them. So now he's going to be with them, and what he's going to do, it's going to lead to the fulfilling of this task given to Adam. So... um, uh, this, this is repeated again to uh, Isaac and, um, and then in uh, chapter 28 it's repeated to um, uh, Jacob I'll bless you, make you fruitful multiply you 
that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. And uh, likewise, chapter 35, same thing to Jacob again. Be fruitful and multiply. And then uh, Israel comes and lives in the land and uh, they acquire property. And Exodus 1, 7, verse 12 and 20 also say they were fruitful, became very numerous and sworn. They began to fulfill this uh, promise to Abraham that ultimately had its origin with Adam. They began to fulfill it, but of course they don't. But it's very interesting that fulfillment language really is used here. They, they begin, they, they're, they're multiplying, they're becoming numerous, they're filling the land, it says. And so, uh, but then what happens, Israel doesn't do this throughout Scripture. They blow it as, um, as Adam did. And then when you come to these texts here, which we're going to look at later, in a few minutes, these are end-time texts about how the temple is going to expand to the whole earth. In Jeremiah 3, in Ezekiel 36-7, Zechariah 1, Daniel 2, Isaiah 54. We're going to look at those. But I want to make a comment right now about how... Uh, uh, Israel is an Adam-like figure, as were the patriarchs. Uh, why the passing on of the commission is given to them, and uh, and there's a point in the in the midst of uh, these repeated commissions where God says, "I will be with you." Ultimately, I think what that means is that that uh, they're they're going to enable the seed of the patriarchs to fulfill this uh, this mission. But notice, you remember, and we're jumping way ahead now, but uh, the phrase Son of Man and Son of God actually is a phrase used in the Old Testament before you ever get to the New. It's used of Israel. Psalm 80 refers to Israel as a Son of Man. And I think Daniel 7 does as well, um, in part. Son of God refers to Israel. Just remember Exodus chapter 4. Uh, out of Egypt have I called my son. And again, you find it elsewhere that Israel is God's son. Remember Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt have I called my son, Hosea 11.1 1 says. So, so uh, why is Israel called the son of God and the son of man? Because they are sons of Adam. They are sons of the man. Um, they're, 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 they're sons of Adam. And they're sons of God. But wait a minute, how does that refer to Adam? And I have to stop a second here. You remember Genesis chapter 5 says that Adam was and Eve were created in the likeness and image of God. And then it says, and Adam bore a son in his likeness. Oh, and if my wife were here, she'd say, okay, Greg, tell me, so what difference does that make? <laughs> Let's go back to Genesis 1.28. God creates Adam in the likeness and image of himself. Likeness and image is sonship language. Remember chapter 5, God bore Seth in his likeness. Just after it had said that God created Adam and Eve in the likeness and image of himself. So if we come back and we let Scripture interpret Scripture again, the language of chapter 5, clearly likeness and image is sonship language. Well, it must be likewise in Genesis 1. So that's why probably 
uh, we can say that Adam was a son of God. And, uh, and that Israel, this is why they're called son of God. So where does this language come from? It comes right out of Israel taking on the mantle of the Genesis 1.28 commission to Adam. And, of course, they fail, don't they? Anybody else in Scripture uh, in the New Testament called Son of Man and Son of God? Thank you, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. No, I took your laughing. I understood what, it, what you meant. Yeah, Jesus. I mean, why? Usually we identify Son of God with His deity and Son of Man with His humanity. Yes, that's true. But if you really study Son of Man, it also has divine aspects to it in Daniel 7. For example, I saw a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7, 13. The only one who comes on clouds of heaven in the Old Testament is Yahweh. He's called the cloud rider by the rabbis. And so that, that may intimate indeed that he is uh, uh, a Son of Man. In fact, in the Greek Old Testament, when they translated Daniel 7 in one of the versions of Daniel, it says... I saw a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, and he came like the Ancient of Days. Not up to the Ancient of Days. He came like the Ancient of Days. Now, that's an interpretation because it's a later Greek translation, but it shows uh, an understanding of the Son of Man as divine. So, yes, it has to do with humanity, but uh, uh, it also has an aspect of deity. Son of God, yes, that's about deity, but I think we should understand both these terms also functionally in that Jesus was doing what Adam and Israel should have done but didn't. But we've jumped ahead. Um, but I wanted to talk about how significant these terms were in the light of Israel taking on the mantle of Adam. And so, um, as, as we continue then... Um, Commentators have not noticed something very interesting. That the Adamic commission is repeated in direct connection with what looks to be the building of small sanctuaries. Let's stop. What am I saying is this. We're now going to look at passages where the Genesis 1.28 commission is repeated to the patriarchs. We've looked at some of them. But we're going to find in some of those repetitions... The patriarchs are building little temples, little sanctuaries. Why would they do that? Why would they build little sanctuaries when the Genesis 1.28 commission is repeated? Well, just as Genesis 1.28, that commission was initially to be carried out by Adam in a localized place, a sanctuary, enlarging the borders of the garden sanctuary, so it appears to be not accidental that the restatement of the commission to Israel's patriarchs results in them building little sanctuaries. And so what do they do? Here's what happens. Uh, There are six elements uh, that occur only elsewhere in the Old Testament in describing Israel's tabernacle or temple. So what we're going to look at, these six elements later in the Old Testament describe the temple or the tabernacle. And here they're describing what these patriarchs are doing. They're building little sanctuaries. So here's what happens. When uh, God gives the commission, they then He appears to them. They pitch a tent, literally a tabernacle in Hebrew, ohel. And um, in, 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 in Greek, um, 
Uh, it is the word for tabernacle. And it's on a mountain. They build altars. They worship God, quote, calling on the name of the Lord, probably including sacrificial offerings. The place where these activities occur is often located at Bethel, house of God. Um, and then there's the presence of a tree in these locations. Why would there be a tree? Well, I think to, to conjure up the garden imagery. Um, and so uh, we're going to look at a specific case here where this happens with Jacob. So Jacob departs from Beersheba, comes to a certain place. He lays down in that place. He has a dream. A ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you, to you and your descendants. Now we get the restatement from Genesis 1.28. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is really an interpretative expansion of Genesis 1.28, of filling the earth. You're going to stretch out to all the points of the compass so that um, in you all, notice the scope again, all the families of the earth. So there is the restatement of the commission. And and then Jacob awakes and uh, said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. It's the gate of heaven because the, the angels were coming up and down on, on the ladder and uh, from heaven. And he, he calls that place the house of God. Very interesting. And uh, then Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone he put under his head, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on his top. He called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. And then he says, this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. So he sees that this small sanctuary he's building is going to get bigger. And I think it's pointing to uh, the big temple that's going to be built in, in Jerusalem. So when the patriarchs set up these different altars on mountains, which are really, I would call it, small-scale sanctuary building. When they do that, they're really, as in the case of Jacob, he realizes that what he's done is going to be expanded and expanded to the big temple in Jerusalem. So he understands there's got to be expansion. And that that, that idea of expansion is rooted in extending even to the ends of the earth. Because we're going to see then that the prophets understand the big temple isn't the end of it. That's going to be something that's going to be expanded even more. And so, um, Israel uh, takes on this commission, the commission of the patriarchs, and uh, and then we find that for the uh, first time uh, that the, uh, well, most explicitly that the temple in Jerusalem is referred to as temple, even though we did see that with Jacob, but now repeatedly again and again, this structure in Jerusalem that is built is called a temple, and it's that to which all these small-scale temple building activities by the patriarchs 
was pointing. So Israel's tabernacle in the wilderness and later temple was a reestablishment of the Garden of Eden's sanctuary. We've already seen how the Garden of Eden had essential similarities with Israel's temple, and uh, so that this temple is a development of uh, the Garden of Eden. Now notice also, in fact, that the patriarchs were building, uh, we we might call it small-scale sanctuary building, that becomes even clearer now with David. In 1 Chronicles, David's preparations for building the temple uh, that Solomon will accomplish, uh, these preparations include all the same elements found with the small-scale temple building activities of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which confirms that their building activities um, were indeed miniature versions of or pointers to a later sanctuary. So notice what David does. He begins the preparations on a mountain, Mount Moriah. David experiences a theophany. He sees the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven like Jacob did with them coming down on the ladder. The ladder isn't mentioned here. At this site, David built an altar to the Lord, offered burnt offerings, called to the Lord. David calls the place the house of God because this is the site of Israel's future temple to be prepared by David and built by Solomon. So, um, now there's something else true of the Eden Temple that hasn't been mentioned yet, and it becomes clearer with the structural temple in Jerusalem, and that is that the temple served as a little earthly model of the whole cosmos. Um, Let me mention that again. The temple, especially the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem, was a little earthly model of the heavens and the earth. Now, you might say, really? Excuse me? That structure, which is the temple, there we've got the Holy of Holies, then we have the holy place, then we have the courtyard. That structure is symbolic of the whole cosmos? I don't see it. Well, you got to go in and smell it and taste it and touch it to realize it. Um, Psalm 78.69 says something amazing about the temple. It says this. Psalm 78.69, quote, God built the sanctuary like the heavens. He built the sanctuary like the earth which He has founded forever. Exodus 25, 8-9 says something similar. So the idea is this, that God has modeled the temple in some way to be a little replica of the heaven and the earth. Again, you say, I don't see it. Well, Isaiah 66, 1 says this, quote, Heaven is my throne, God says, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? You see, God never intended that Israel's little localized temple last forever. Even in Jerusalem. Even though it was bigger than the patriarchal temples. It was not intended to last forever. Since like the Eden temple or sanctuary, and perhaps Noah's uh, sanctuarial ark, Israel's temple was a small model of something which was to become much bigger. It wasn't to stay small like that. God in His universal cosmic presence 
could never be eternally contained there. That's where his special revelatory presence was. Only the high priest could go there once a year. And even then the high priest couldn't see him. He had to produce an incense cloud so that he'd be veiled from the presence of God otherwise he would be struck dead. So, the temple then was a miniature model of God's huge cosmic temple which was to dominate the heavens and the earth. In other words, this thing in some way was to expand. Weird, but it was. Now, this temple was a model pointing, not just symbolic of the present heavens and earth, but it pointed to a future new heavens and earth which would be perfectly filled with His presence. So that this presence was never intended to be contained eternally in the back room of a little structure. It was intended to break out so that the essence of the temple, you see, is the presence of God. And His presence was intended ultimately to break out because we know the verse that says the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. And we've already talked about that, actually, haven't we? As a part of Adam's task, it was never completed. Now, that this is a miniature model of the coming temple which would fill heavens and earth is evident from the following features. Now we're going to see why this is a model of the heavens and the earth. First of all, as we've already mentioned, the temple was divided into three sections. Holy of Holies, Holy Place, Courtyard. And um, first of all, the Holy of Holies probably represented the unseen heavenly dimension of the cosmos. Because the cosmos is not just physical. And why would that be? Why would it represent the unseen? Well, just as the angelic cherubim guard God's throne in the heavenly temple, so you have the cherubim, uh, uh, these angelic figures right here, guarding, which symbolizes what's going on in heaven. The real cherubim, the real uh, angelic beings are guarding God's throne in heaven. That's probably why we have them pictured here, especially in light of the next points. The fact that no image of God was found here. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern temples, you always found an image of the God right here. There's no image here. It's empty. And I think the significance of the emptiness is that this is the unseen. It represents the unseen place. You can't see God in the unseen dimension of heaven. Third, the Holy of Holies, in fact, was the place where the heavenly dimension came down and intersected with earth. This was the only place where the special revelatory presence of God intersected with earth. Remember, God is pictured in heaven sitting on His throne with His feet extending down onto the ottoman of the Ark of the Covenant. And so... Uh, this is the bottom part of the extension of heaven right here in this area. Um, And likewise, the Holy of Holies, remember, was cordoned off. We don't see the curtain in this picture, but there was a curtain separating it from the holy place and the courtyard. And we're going to see in a moment, in a few seconds or minutes, that the holy place represented the visible heavens, and the courtyard represented the visible earth, 
and here we have a curtain separating this area from the symbolic heavens and earth. So this probably, again, that means it represents the invisible dimension of heaven. Even the high priest, as we said, who could only enter once a year had to produce an incense cloud uh, because he could not see God uh, directly which would represent uh, he could not be exposed to that special revelatory presence of God or he would be struck down because he's sinful. Um, Now, the holy place represented the starry visible heavens. Again, you say, really? I don't quite see that. Well, you you would have to go into it. First of all, the curtains that were in here that were integrated from the tabernacle Uh, they were made of blue and purple and scarlet. What's that reflect? Probably the variegated colors of the sky. And there were figures of winged creatures in those curtains, probably enforcing the imagery of the visible heavens. Secondly, very importantly, there's no lampstand here. I'm going to have to find another one with a lampstand. I don't don't like that. but at any rate, this almost looks like Ezekiel 40 to 48, where some of the furniture's missing, but uh, there's no table there either. Anyway, this is a very imperfect picture of the temple here. But there was a lampstand in the holy place right here, and there were seven uh, uh, lights on it. In Solomon's temple, there were ten lampstands. So if you looked in there, uh, it, it looked like a, a solarium or something like that. You know, this um, uh, place where it looked like there were just a bunch of stars there. And um, it would, would have really be, uh, been emphasized in Solomon's temple. In the second temple, there was only one lampstand. Now, this symbolism uh, here that this represents the visible heaven seen by the naked eye is enhanced by observing that this word right here, in Hebrew pronounced me'or, the plural me'orot means lights, which is used of the lights on the top of the lampstand here. And it's used ten times in the Pentateuch for the lights on the lampstand. Now the only other place in the first five books of the Bible where it's used, anybody want to guess? Lights? Genesis 1. What do they represent there? Sun, the moon, and the stars. And so likely, uh, uh, these lights were intended to represent the sun, the moon, and the stars. In fact, Isaiah 40 says this, that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And he goes on and says, God has created the host of stars to hang in the tent. Isaiah 40, 22 and 26. Psalm 19, 4 to 5 says that in heaven God placed a tent for the sun. So uh, probably these are, uh, this is language that enforces the idea that um, uh, this tabernacle, this uh, temple here, the holy place, was symbolic of the seen uh, heavens, the starry heavens. And furthermore, uh, both the Holy of Holies And the holy place, the walls and the ceilings and the floor were covered in gold. Why would that be? Well, it may be uh, that a sheen was to be produced that reflected, uh, that was to be seen as a reflection of the uh, 
starry host, the sun and the moon. Possibly. In Egypt, it's very interesting, they uh, again had their temples pointing east, and it was all in gold uh, inside. So when the sun shone in it, it just really uh, brightened up from the sheen of the gold. And there may be uh, something like that going on here. Though the Egyptian temples, of course, would be a corrupted form of uh, God's understanding of a temple. Furthermore, and fourth, because of this evidence that we've talked about so far, um, the early Jews of the first century, Josephus and Philo, Philo probably lived at the time of Jesus, in fact. He was a writer in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And Josephus witnessed the destruction of the temple. He was a Pharisee and a priest. And um, uh, he uh, wrote about these things. Both he and Philo say that the lights on the lampstand represent the starry host, sun, moon, and the stars. That doesn't make it so, because they're not scripture. But uh, Josephus actually had been in the temple. In fact, he says that on the curtain right here, separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place, there was needlework on the outside of the curtain of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, again, facing out to the, toward the holy place, again, emphasizing that that was the function of, of the holy place to reflect the, um, the symbolic of the seen heavens. And then the courtyard uh, around the temple probably represents the visible sea and the earth. Well, how is that so? Well, you remember there's a large molten wash basin uh, in the temple and it's called the Brazen Sea uh, 1 Kings 7 23 to 26 and um, also there's an altar that's called the bosom of the earth Ezekiel 43 14 and um, the altar was to be quote an altar of earth or an altar of uncut stone identifying Again, the place where it was as part of the earth. Uh, Both the sea and the altar appear to be symbols that may have been associated in the mind of the Israelite with the seas and the earth. The Bronze Sea, for example, it was huge. In 1 Kings 7, 38-39, it was seven feet high. It would have been inconvenient for priests to wash in, though they probably did. But there are also waist-high basins in the courtyard to wash from, where they probably wash from more. But why have this huge wash basin? Probably it was representative of the seas. Um, And under that wash basin uh, was an arrangement of 12 bulls. uh, Encircling it, lily blossoms on the brim. Uh, So again, it's conjuring up earthly kind of uh, animals and vegetation. In fact, the, the bulls were divided into threes, each uh, set facing uh, east, west, north, and south, reflecting the four quadrants of the earth. So, And perhaps this area here was associated with the earth because this is where all Israelites could come. They couldn't come into the holy place, only priests and only the high priest here. But all Israelites could come here. It may be symbolic of where humanity lived. Why? Because Israel was a son of man. They were uh, 
those who were carrying on the mantle of Adam. And as the nations looked at Israel, Israel should have been a model of uh, carrying out the task of Adam. Of course, they were not. So the cumulative effect of these observations is that Israel's temple served as a little earthly model of God's temple in heaven, which I believe uh, God would eventually come out of the Holy of Holies. His presence would encompass the visible heavens and all of the seen earth. I think that's the purpose of this. This is not just a model of the present heavens and earth at the time of Israel, nor uh, 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 the past heavens and earth. It is a uh, probably serving to, to symbolize what's going to happen in the future. It's going to expand. How is this thing going to expand? It's going to build bigger temples? No. God's presence, the essence of the temple, is going to break out. And that revelatory presence from the Holy of Holies is going to break out throughout the whole earth. The inner sanctuary of God's invisible presence would extend to include the visible heavens and earth. And this is why the latter two sections of the courtyard and the holy place are symbolized in Israel's earthly temple to show they'll be consumed by God's holy of holies presence. Remember the original garden temple had to expand to fill the whole earth. Remember that? Um, And that was part of carrying out the commission of Genesis 1, filling the earth. With what? Image bearers. With what? Well, those image bearers reflect the glory of God. Now when we come to Israel's temple, the recapitulation of Eden, uh, this has to fill the whole earth as the original task uh, that Adam had in Eden. So God, how's he going to do that? Just as God's presence was to be expanded from Eden to the ends of the earth, now it's going to come out uh, of the Holy of Holies at some point. Fill the seen heavens. Fill the earth. You know, whenever a, a school or a business... Sometimes a church decides to expand. I remember I was part of a church expansion in uh, England, in, in Massachusetts, and it was a little—it was an old New England church, but it, it was overcrowded, so they decided to build a bigger sanctuary, Sunday school rooms, bigger parking lot. And so an architect got a little model and created a model of the church, the sanctuary, uh, the Sunday school rooms, the parking lot. And as we went into the narthex before entering into the um, sanctuary, um, isn't it interesting to call this what we're in, the sanctuary? Very interesting. Anyway, uh, as before you entered into the sanctuary, um, you'd see this model. And nobody ever said, wow, that architect, boy, what a great model maker. It's, that is just wonderful. Look at this and, and, and look at that. I mean, maybe in passing they did, but that was not the focus. That would have been weird. This was not a model in and of itself. This was not a model whose goal was just to remain a model. It was to show there was going to be a big expansion of what was pictured there. So, likewise, here. But here, it's not the structure that will expand. It's the essence of the structure, which is the glorious presence of God. Israel's temple served the same purpose. It was a small-scale model and symbolic reminder to Israel of the task God wanted them to carry out. The same task that Adam and Israel should have carried out, but, but, but did not. They should have subdued the earth, spread God's presence throughout. Interesting that the land of promise, uh, the promised land is, is sometimes called 
Eden in the Old Testament. The Garden of Eden. Genesis 13, Isaiah 51.3, Joel 2.3, Ezekiel 36.35 or some of those places. So they should have spread this out. They should have been faithful. I don't know exactly how it would have worked, but if they had been faithful as carrying on Adam's task, that at some point God would have broken out from the Holy of Holies. Just as if Adam had been faithful, God's presence would have spread. Now we have to ask, however, something. Why is the... uh, in, In Revelation 21 the new heavens not only equated with a garden and a temple, but why a city? Remember, we hadn't covered city yet. Now we got to do that. So, here we go. So here's a little uh, a section uh, before we move to the New Testament and how temple develops in the New Testament. Why? What does the Old Testament say about city in relation to temple? Well, let's look at it. Here's Genesis uh, 28. Here's Isaiah 54.3. says to Israel, you'll spread out to the right and to the left and your seed will possess nations. Remember, possessing the nations is one of the ways of expressing subduing and ruling in Genesis 1.28. But this passage here is an allusion. A. To Genesis 28 that we looked at. Remember? The repetition of the commission to Jacob, your seed will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in your seed, all the families of the nations will be blessed. So now we see an end-time prophecy developing this, this statement, which is a prophecy also in Genesis 28. It's further developed here. And, um, uh, and, and here in Isaiah 54, uh, it is called the tabernacle that is spreading out. I want to read those words for you in 54. 54.2 Enlarge the place of your tent. Oh my gosh! That's just what we've been talking about. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs. Speaking of Israel. 4. Then we come to verse 3. 4. You'll spread out to the right the left. Your seed will possess nations. So, is it accidental that in Genesis 28 this wording is directly related with Jacob building a small temple? And then in chapter 54 verse 2 it says enlarge the place of your tent. And then we get the reference here, allusion back to Genesis. I don't think it's an accident. And so again, Israel was to expand. The tabernacle was to expand to all the nations. So presumably that would have included the temple first expanding and covering the city, the promised land, and then the whole earth. But with regard specifically uh, to the temple covering the city is Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, you notice I mentioned... Some of these texts I'm going to look at. Here's Jeremiah 3 right there. In, uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 3, in, in verse uh, toward the end of the passage. Let's see. 
beginning at verse 16. It'll be in those days, Israel, when you were multiplied and increased in the land. Does that ring any bells? Genesis 1.28. Okay. They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. In other words, in the future, there's not going to be a structural ark. Okay? At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it. What, what does that mean? Well, there's not going to be an ark of the Lord where God's throne was. Remember, His throne extended down to the Holy of Holies where the ark was. In the future, there's going to be no ark in the temple. In fact, there's not going to be a structural temple. In fact, what's going to happen, the first movement of God spreading out from the temple will be, verse 17, they'll call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. No longer will the Holy of Holies be the throne of the Lord. Jerusalem will be the throne of the Lord. So the temple will spread out. Notice also Zechariah. Zechariah 1 and 2, where we find this, uh, this idea of temple expansion with regard to the city. Chapter 1 and verse 16. Chapter 1, 16. Of Zechariah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. Now notice, my house will be built in it. That is, in Jerusalem, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So, for the building of the temple, um, there's going to be a measuring line. And, uh, and it relates to Jerusalem. So, I'm going to build my house. There's going to be a measuring line. So, you have to have a measuring line, right, to architecturally build a house. But then it says it will be stretched over Jerusalem. Now look at chapter 2. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. Remember, that was to build the temple. So I said, where are you going? He said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is, how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, another angel was coming out to meet him, saying... Uh, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a fire around her. I'll be the glory in the midst of her. In other words, the building of the temple with the measuring line is also a measuring of Jerusalem because God's holy of holies presence, the special revelatory glorious presence is not going to be secluded in the holy of holies it's now going to be, he's going to be a wall around Jerusalem. Look again at verse 5. I will be a fire around her and my glory will be in her midst. So again, I think what's happened here is that uh, it's not just the Holy of Holies where God's glorious presence is. It's moved out and it's covered the city as well. Um Daniel 2. This is amazing. You don't need to turn to Daniel 2. Uh, remember Daniel 2? We talked about it last night. A big statue representing the nations of the world. A stone cut without hands smashes the statue and, and causes it to uh, be so decimated that the, it's in such small pieces the, the, the winds of heaven carry it away. Um, so it's this stone I want to focus on. What is that stone? 
Well, uh, Daniel 2 says it is a stone that uh, represents the kingdom, but I think it also represents the temple. Uh, notice Isaiah 2, 2-3 to also utilizes a mountain uh, to symbolize Israel. Because remember, in Daniel 2, the stone grows into a mountain, fills the earth. Well, in Isaiah 2, 2-3, it says that the mountain of the house of the Lord will grow above the other mountains. So, the house of the Lord uh, is on a mountain that grows. It's inextricably linked with the mountain, the house and the mountain. So Daniel 2 is a growing stone. It's kind of weird. It's a stone, comes a mountain, fills the whole earth. Sort of unique to this passage here, which is clearly talking about a temple, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that grows. Then there's a close link between mountain and temple elsewhere in the Old Testament. So that Mount Zion is sometimes just merely referred to as a mountain. Um, So what we're doing here is looking at that stone of Daniel 2 that struck the statue. It's not just representing the kingdom. It's a kingdom temple. It is uh, a stone. It's a foundational stone of the temple that grows, becomes a mountain of the house of the Lord, and then fills the earth. Let's keep going. Um, Thirdly, Daniel 2 and Isaiah 2 both are introduced as containing events that occur in the latter days. Same phrase in Hebrew and in Greek. Epheskaton ton hemerum. And um, so Daniel 2.28 says, In the latter days, O king, God has shown you what must come to pass. So also the, the temple text prophecy of Isaiah is introduced as in the latter days. So what I'm doing is showing actually that Daniel is alluding probably back to Isaiah which makes Daniel also a temple text. Um, And as I've already said, both Isaiah uh, and Micah portray, Micah repeats Isaiah, they both portray uh, a temple uh, that is growing. It'll be raised above the hills. Um, I don't want to look at five now. Uh, I don't want to look at six because I don't want to take time to explain it. But look at this. The stone of Daniel 2 is associated with temple-like image comes from the Gospels, which allude to this passage. Notice Matthew, uh, uh, Luke, and and Matthew 21, 42. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Okay, that's from Psalm 118. And then he introduces Daniel 2, where the stone strikes the image that represents opposition to God. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. That's Daniel 2. So he's identifying a cornerstone with that stone of Daniel 2. This is amazing to me. My students summarize my teaching sometime as amazing. <laughs> you want to summarize me, I'll just say amazing. So... Um, but it is, it is. Secondly, furthermore then, another link between the stone mountain of Daniel 2 and the end time temple is that both are not made by hands. Again, in the New Testament, if you study the phrase, not made with hands, most of the time it refers to the temple, the new temple of Jesus Christ. Not made with hands. 
Is it accidental that Daniel 2 says a stone was cut out, not made with hands? So all of this is coming together. That this. So what we're finding here is that this foundation stone of the temple is going to grow. It's obviously going to fill the city. It's going to fill the promised land as a mountain. It's going to fill the earth. So we've got a growing temple here. And uh, I'm not going to, there's one other passage we could look at. I'm not going to now, but Ezekiel 37, 27. Now Israel then received um, the same commission as Adam, uh, but they did not fulfill it. They didn't carry out the great mandate to spread God's presence. In fact, Isaiah 42 and 49, 6 says the true Israelite servant, who's called true Israel in Isaiah 49, 6, He's the servant of Isaiah 53. He'll be a light to the nations. But Israel was not a light to the nations. They were not mediators. Exodus 19.6 says to Israel, you are a kingdom and priest. They should have been mediators between God and the dark nations. They weren't. Instead of seeing the temple as a symbol of the task to expand God's presence to all the nations, Israel viewed the temple to be symbolic of the purported fact that they were God's only true people and that God's presence was to be restricted only to Israel and not expanded except to judge. The only reason to be any expansion of God's glory is to judge the nasty nations, the unclean nations. So what does God do? Um, he sends them out into exile like he did Adam. So the corporate Adam Israel goes into exile just as their father Adam had gone. And um, so God starts the process of temple building over again. And uh, this time he plans that the local spiritual boundaries of all the past architectural temples of, for example, Israel's temple would be expanded finally to encompass the boundaries of the entire earth. How does he do this? Now we come to the last section of our time this morning, and it's titled, Christ and His Followers are a Temple in the New Creation. Christ and His Followers are a Temple in the New Creation. Christ is the temple toward which all earlier temples looked and which they anticipated. In fact, the Messiah was to be the builder of the temple. Now Judaism held that view, But Zechariah 6 actually says it. It says in Zechariah 6, in verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he'll branch out from where he is. See the expansion? And he'll build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will between the be between the two offices. You see, with the fall of Adam, office of priest and king became separated. To come back together with the last Adam, king, priest. Now, this passage in Zechariah 6 may be referring to a figure who builds the second temple, but it, it doesn't come to consummation. So then it, an, a, another branch must come probably typologically foreshadows one who will build the temple in the future because chapter 6 ends with this. Uh, Those who are far off will come and build the temple 
And it says, you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, and this will take place, the building of the temple. Listen, this is very interesting. This building of the temple will take place. This is Zechariah 6.15. This building of the temple will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. No. They didn't. They failed. Even uh, though they constructed the second temple, that wasn't it. In fact, it was so pathetic that the elders that remembered the first temple cried. That's how pathetic it was um, from, from the human standpoint. So when we come to the New Testament, Christ is the epitome of God's presence on earth. as God incarnate, continuing the true form of the temple, which actually was a foreshadowing of His presence all along. You remember John 1.14? You know, just almost the first shot out of the Johannine bag in chapter 1, verse 14. uh, It says, And uh, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. You could say he templed among us. Tabernacle temple. He tabernacled among us. And, and what do you see in, in the temple? God's glory in the Holy of Holies. In other words, Christ is now broken out. The temple is expanding. The presence of God from the Holy of Holies has broken out. His glory is expanding through Christ. Not consummately yet. But it is expanding. And uh, as we already saw, Christ refers to himself as the cornerstone. Remember, we just saw that. Find that in Mark 12.10, the passage we looked at at Matthew 21.42, and so on. And remember in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, remember Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? Again, they were literal interpreters. And uh, they thought he was talking about the temple. Destroy it, and I'll just magically uh, reconstruct that huge, huge, huge temple that took generations to build. No, he's talking about himself. In fact, in destroying the temple, he's, he's, he's performing a double entendre. He's really saying, destroy me as the temple. And you can't keep a good temple man down. I'll just raise that temple up again. And um, Which is... Indeed, what happened, it says, after his resurrection, says the disciples remembered that Jesus had said this and that uh, indeed he was the temple. Um, so every, all these temples in the Old Testament, sometimes they're direct prophecies of the end time temple, sometimes uh, uh, the constructions of these temples pointed forward, they all pointed forward to the Messiah who would become the temple. And... Um, uh, I remember when I first started studying in England um, that I'd begun to date uh, who became my wife, Dorinda. We only dated a few weeks, and then I kept putting my air flight off, you know, for about, you know, day after day. Finally, I, I had to leave. So I went to England. We wrote for a year. Uh, we talked on the phone. Uh, built up quite a debt over the phone as well. But I remember I'd get some of her letters, and, and I remember she'd give me a picture of herself. And when I got a letter, I would, I would look at her picture and read her letter and you know study her letters very carefully. And uh, uh, 
I remember her picture was with her brother. I finally had to cut the brother out. I got, I got so tired. Uh, I, I, got, I felt guilty looking at her that way, and there's her brother right there. But, uh, and I got tired of looking at her brother, too. So at any rate, um, don't tell him that. But um, I, I, he's a good guy. Um, and so um, we've been married, got married in 1978, been married quite a while now. And if we were in our living room and I was sitting in one chair and she was sitting on another chair across the room uh, and I had that picture and I was hugging it and kissing it. I remember one guy when he was overseas, he actually hugged and kissed the picture of the girl he was writing. Maybe I did that, I don't remember. But if I was hugging and kissing the picture now, she would call my pastor and say, something is wrong with my husband. He's been at this conference on the book of Revelation, and he's gotten too involved in the book of Revelation. And um, he, he's just uh, studying apocalyptic too much. He's, 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 gone, he, he's gone a little weird on me. And uh, Now, that would be really weird, wouldn't it? Why would that be weird? Because I have the presence to which the picture pointed. It's there. Why would I hug and kiss the picture? Oh, I can kiss my wife. She's here. And so to expect, as many dispensationalists do, that there's going to be a future literal architectural temple is to just keep saying, oh, we're going to continue to have the picture. The fullness of the picture has come. The substance of Jesus Christ has come. And you can't reverse that. He is the beginning of this end-time temple. So... uh, in fact, when we get to Paul, he just assumes the church is the temple. Anybody have any idea you can answer here? Uh, when do you think the commencement of the church as the temple began? Any ideas? Pentecost. Pentecost, yeah. You know what? If you read any commentary on the book of Acts, you won't find that. In fact, you won't find that in essays and journals. It's hard to find. And I remember I was so excited about this. Oh, oh my gosh. You know, I saw some evidence that the descent of the fiery tongues meant that God was building the church into the temple of Christ through the Spirit. And because the tongues were descending upon them. And um, uh, so I shared this with a systematic theologian. And I said, you know, this is amazing. No New Testament scholars have seen this. He said, well, of course, I've always understood it that way. Then I talked to an Old Testament colleague, and same thing. He said, well, of course, I've always understood it that way. So, I mean, you know, New Testament scholars sometimes get too much in the weeds. It takes sometimes a systematic theologian or an Old Testament professor to kind of get a better perspective. But that phrase, tongues of fire, occurs in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 27. Likewise, in Isaiah 5, and it refers to the theophonic presence of God from His heavenly temple. Tongues of fire refers to God's tabernacling presence from heaven. And as it comes down, it's incorporating God's people into it. In fact, one of the earliest Jewish texts, which my wife says, I'm not listening to you now. You're not talking about the Bible. But, you know, we do need to put the Bible in its world sometimes. Uh, This text is not inerrant. But uh, 1 Enoch 14 presents this heavenly temple as having its built of tongues of fire, especially in the Holy of Holies. 
tongues of fire. The same phrase, exactly in Greek, as in Acts. I think it's reflecting on Isaiah. Chapter 30, probably. So, uh, tongues of fire is a temple uh, image. And then 1 Corinthians 3.16, of course, Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? And, uh, and then we come to uh, this very interesting text in 2 Corinthians 6. I will dwell in them, I'll walk among them, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. There's that uh, covenantal passage again because it's quoted from Ezekiel 37. And notice in Ezekiel 37, I'll set my sanctuary in their midst, my dwelling place will also be with them, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. And that itself is developing Leviticus 26. I'll make my dwelling among you, walk among you, uh, you'll be, uh, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And there also, notice dwelling, it's tabernacle. These are all texts where God is going to have this intimate relationship with his people in his temple. And so it's not by accident that this passage in 2 Corinthians is uh, introduced with we are a temple of the living God. That's how this passage is introduced. And so these prophecies now are seen to be beginning fulfillment in the Corinthians. In fact, even notice the temple prophecy of Isaiah 52.11. It says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. They're to go out from Babylon. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. So these are seen as commandments to the priest in the exile of Babylon to come out with the vessels of the temple and that are to be given by the Persian king to help in rebuilding the temple. And of course, uh, that second temple didn't catch. Uh, it failed. But now in Christ, the command's given again. And it will not fail. So come out, you Corinthians, from the midst of the unbelieving Corinthian culture. Separate. Do not touch what is uh, unclean, and I will welcome you. Um, of course, as I said last night, the church is also uh, uh, said to be lampstands, a, a part of the temple in Revelation 1 and in chapter uh, 11. So Christ perfectly obeys, expands the boundaries of the temple from himself to others. I'm going to put something here that I debate whether I should do it because it's hard. But everything's been hard. So I'm going to do it anyway. So I believe that the Great Commission, by the way, I think the Great Commission is Genesis 1.28. Okay? So everything we've been saying, evangelism has its roots in Genesis 1.28 and, and expanding the temple, garden. And um, so we're, we're, we're to expand Eden to the ends of the earth as a church and as individuals. So Jesus is just repeating. This is the hundredth commission, if you will. But uh, it's very important because it comes from the lips of the temple incarnate himself. Uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. By the way, that's an allusion to Daniel 7.13, 
about the Son of Man. But it's also an allusion to Second Chronicles. This is the last verse of the Hebrew Bible. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, Jesus has intensified that. And notice what Cyrus says. He's telling them to go rebuild the temple. And he says, God has appointed me as a pagan king to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah. Whoever there is among all of you, may the Lord, his God, be with him. So we have, lo, I am with you always. And let him go up. It's a command. So also, notice, go, therefore. So I think there's enough here. In fact, this is based on a THM uh, uh, thesis from Gordon Conwell Seminary um, that, that passed, actually. Did a, <laughs> did a good job. Doesn't mean it's correct, but I think he is. And so, basically, we, we have here these elements in common. We have uh, be with him, be with you in common, let him go up, go in common. But what we don't have in common is there's no temple here. Here it's build a house in Jerusalem. I think, if it's correct that this passage is built on this, that making disciples is building the temple. If that's that's a correct uh, parallel there. So making the disciples is uh, uh, actually taking the place in this parallel of building a house in Jerusalem. And so as people join the church, as the temple expands and it expands and gets bigger as people come into the uh, temple of God, the church, we're to continue the task of sharing God's presence with others until the end of the age when God will cause that task to be completed. And the whole earth will be under the roof of God's temple, which is none other than saying that God's presence will fill the earth in a way it never had before. It's sort of like uh, if you've seen these party balloons and they have print on them, but you, you can't read it at all when it's not blown up. But you put air into it and uh, it becomes clear. Uh, what it says. So, uh, on analogy, a very mundane metaphor, um, uh, the temple is, is 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 going to expand. It looks pathetic in the Old Testament, but it's going to be blown up with eschatological air when Christ comes, and we have the consummation at the end. Now, the the last section of our time is titled this. The mystery of how John can see a new heavens and earth in 21.1 and in the rest of the vision see only a city in the form of a garden temple equated with a bride, I think, has been clarified by looking at the purpose of the temple throughout Scripture. Now, I haven't mentioned bride. I don't have much time. I will just mention this about the bride in chapter uh, 65 of Isaiah. It explains why uh, bride is mentioned in conjunction with city. And the, the allusions in chapter 21 are partly to this passage. Um, Isaiah 62. Beginning at verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet. 
until her righteousness goes forth like brightness, her salvation like a torch. That's interesting. In other words, sun's going to go forth from Jerusalem, brightness, a torch, which I think is these are images for God's glory. Then Isaiah 62, 2, and the nations will see your righteousness. All kings, your glory, you'll be called by a new name. Now we're getting into marriage metaphors. This is why this is the basis for the tradition of the wife taking on the name of the husband because they take on the name of the Lord. You'll be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You'll be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And who is this? Well, it's Zion from verse 1. And it's also the land of Israel. So Zion is a city, is also a bride. Why? Because we're talking about, again, intimate covenantal relationships. And I think that's why the two are combined there. Now, the new heavens and earth are now described as a temple because the temple equals God's presence. It encompasses the whole earth because of the work of Christ. This is the consummation of Christ's work, by the way. The very end of time, the process of end-time temple building will be completed. The true temple comes down and fills the earth. That's the significance of chapter 21, where verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That, that's when the glory of God fills the whole earth. I don't think it's before that. That's Again, some, think, some people say, hey, Beal, you're post-millennial. You see this thing growing and growing and growing. Well, it's not consummated until Christ comes. And uh, the growth, by the way, is invisible. Whereas post-millennialists tend to want to see visible growth. Um, so, it's come down. And then verse 3 interprets that coming down as the tabernacle. Behold the tabernacle. And look at chapter 21 and verse 22 that we haven't looked at yet. 21-22, I saw no temple in it, in this city. Wait a minute, that contradicts everything I've been talking about. What the heck's going on here? I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Yeah, there's a temple, but there's no architectural temple in it. But there's everything the temple pointed to. God's presence and the Lamb's presence will exude and permeate every nook and cranny of the new heavens and of the new earth. This true temple is God's special presence, formerly limited to Israel's temple and the church, which will fill eventually the whole earth. The goal of the temple of the Garden of Eden, dominating the entire creation, is finally completed here. Why does Revelation 21.18 say the city will be pure gold? Look at chapter 21, verse 18. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like pure glass. Why is the whole city gold? Remember the Holy of Holies? Ceiling, sides, and floor was gold. So this is expanding. The Holy of Holies is expanding. 
to cover the holy the holy place, the starry heavens, and and the earth. So it's figurative, of course. I don't think it's literal gold, but the point is everything now is holy of holies. It was gold. Now everything's gold. The point is God's holy of holies presence is everywhere in the city, every nook and cranny. Um, we might say, what's the use of the Old Testament here? That is, what's, how is Genesis 128, the commission, connected to Adam extending Eden and filling the earth? How is that finally being understood here? Well, I think what we have in, here in Gen- Revelation 21 is what we might call fulfillment of intended design. I think that's what we could call it. Fulfillment of intended design. Eden was to be expanded to the whole earth. Finally, that has happened. By the way, have you noticed here that there's no mention of a holy place or an outer court in this temple in Revelation 21? Why? Because God's holy of holies presence has broken out, consumed the starry heavens and the earth, which was what the courtyard represented. Holy place represented the starry heavens. You, you don't mention those anymore because now everything's holy of holies. God's broken out of the holy of holies. We as God's people have begun to be God's temple where His presence is manifested to the world. And we're to extend the boundaries of the temple until Christ returns. When finally those boundaries will be consummately expanded. But this idea of a growing temple, it's growing. Uh, as people come into the church, that is, as they come into the temple, and very interesting that sometimes when Paul talks about the temple, and Peter as well, it's a growing thing. You remember Ephesians chapter 2. He says this in verse 21. He's just talked about in verse 20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, listen to this, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom we're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And likewise, 1 Peter 4-5 through speaks of a, a continual building as well. So there, there is this element, actually, of a, of a growing temple. Why? Because that's weird. Sometimes commentators will say, why is Paul talking about a growing temple when he's using an architectural image? Well, that's because the architectural image of the temple was a recapitulation and echo of the garden, a growing garden. So we we are priests in this temple. Remember Adam was a priest, and remember we're prophets, priests, and kings? As priests in the temple, we are to do the following things. Remember, uh, Israel was to be mediators between God and the dark world. So are we as the church. Priests taught. Where to teach? At whatever level. I'm not talking about elders now uh, in, in the office and the gift of elders, but generally speaking, we disciple people as believers. And that does involve teaching. That's a priestly type of thing, part of the office of priest. We are people, we should be people of prayer. Isaiah 56 says that the house of God in the end time was to be a place of prayer for the nations. We're to be a people of prayer. And we're to offer sacrifices. But now it's a little different. Remember Romans 12.1, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable service of worship. No longer do we offer animals. That's gone. We follow Jesus. We offer ourselves. Now, it's not substitutionary and vicarious, but we do live cruciform lives. And as Elizabeth Elliot said, one way that's carried out is by dying little deaths for one another. Little deaths. Whenever you sacrifice for someone, it's a little death, whether it's for your wife, whether it's for your husband, etc. We, we, we die little deaths. That's a cruciform living. And so, uh, we are to be those who are expanding the boundaries of Eden. Christ, the last Adam and true Israel, He knew the Word. Adam and Eve did not. If you remember, when the serpent comes and Eve tries to quote the Word in the Garden Temple, she doesn't remember it. First of all, she minimizes their privileges and says, we may eat, but God said you may eat freely. Literally, you may eat, eat. <laughs> she emphasizes it. He emphasizes it. She says, we may eat. Then she uh, minimizes uh, their judgment. God said, you will die, die. Or you'll surely die. She says, we'll die. First liberal theologian. <laughs> and then... She maximizes the prohibitions by you should not eat of it or touch it. God never said don't touch. He's the first legalist. And there are about three more ways, by the way, she misquotes. I'm going to leave it at that. But um, uh, she misquotes when the word comes down, sin comes in. In contrast to Jesus Christ, the last Adam in true Israel who does what Adam should have done, he knew the word when the devil tempts him. He responds perfectly uh, by using Scripture in response to the devil. Do we come to God's Word daily so that we may be strengthened increasingly with God's presence in order to fulfill our task of spreading that presence to others? Remember, it's only by coming to the Word that we know God better and through that Word to reflect Him and increasingly become conformed to His image and thus reflect His glory, and thus be good images in the temple. So the Word is crucial. So we increase the presence of God by His grace, by knowing His Word, trusting it, obeying it, and then we spread that presence to others by living our lives faithfully. For example, and here we're talking about evangelization and how it takes place. When you and I have a joyous faith in the midst of trials... The world says, what's going on there? And by God's grace, it can attract some people to the gospel. Um, And that's what missions is all about. Not only word, but how our lifestyle can function as a witness. And we, we need to place ourselves in the redemptive historical drama here. Because a lot of people think that, oh, I'm living after the Bible now. It's all I'm living after it. No, you and I are still in the drama. It is not over. We're still in the drama that Paul himself was living in. We are part of this growing temple. We are priests. We are actually, we're not like a temple, by the way. We really are 
part of the eschatological temple in Christ because he really is. So we're not just like a temple, but we really are. And that should change how we act. For example, uh, when Paul says you're a temple of the living God and then quotes Old Testament prophecies that the Corinthians were fulfilling, he says this uh, as a conclusion in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, therefore, having these promises fulfilled about the temple, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting, completing holiness in the fear of God. In other words, if you're really a fulfillment of the temple and you're a priest in it, you better be clean. Completing holiness. Cleansing ourselves from defilement of all flesh and spirit. And if we're just like a temple, then uh, maybe it's not as incumbent on us to keep ourselves clean. But if we really are, it enforces that a little more, I think. I remember that one summer when we lived in Wheaton, my wife and I bought a Rose of Sharon bush and it was supposed to grow to about six feet high. Didn't grow. It was in the shade. And um, sometimes the church is like that. We will not bear fruit and grow and extend across the earth in the way God intends unless we stay out of the shadows of the world and remain in the light of God's Word. The mark of a true church is a unified and expanding witness to the presence of God our families, others in the church, our neighborhood, our city, to the country, ultimately to the whole world. May God give us grace to go out into the world as His extending temple. So, the main point of what we've said, and this is a summary of my book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. Our task as a church is to be God's temple, so filled with His glorious presence that we expand and fill the earth with that presence until God finally accomplishes the goal completely at the end of time. This is our common mission. May the church of the 21st century unite in order to attain this goal. Then may the church, the true Israel and true temple, experience the priestly blessing pronounced on Israel from the tabernacle as it extends God's tabernacling presence. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. In Psalm um, 67 develops that priestly blessing we just read. But I want you to see how He develops it in the light of what we've talked about today. God be gracious to us and bless us cause His face to shine upon us. Allusion back to Numbers. Then he immediately goes to missions. Why does he shine his face on us? Why does he bless us? That your way be made known on the earth. Your salvation among the nations. See how it immediately goes outward to the nations? Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad, sing for joy. You will judge the peoples with uprightness. Guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Now, uh, I think it's question and answer time. Or is that is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Bill, could you go back to that your thesis slide one more time? One right before that. Yeah. Is that it?
there. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Okay, we can take some questions, and then uh, you know I would like to pray uh, at the very end. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, that is uh, that, that fits in right with what we're with what we're saying. He saw the promised land, physical promised land. That wasn't the goal, the final goal. It pointed to something greater. And I think it pointed to the um, the, the new creation. Though um, uh, the the writer of Hebrews sees that. Uh, uh, the heavenly dimension of uh, the, the, the temple is in their midst. In chapter 12, 22, uh, he says, You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, etc. A temple isn't talked about right there. It is in the context. But So this stuff is inaugurated. It's in reality, but it's in the invisible dimension. But we're part of it, and it's real. It'll be consummately visibly real in the future at the end. Yeah. Yes, sir? Would you be willing to say a paragraph about a thousand years and Revelation 20? No. <laughs> Just a paragraph. He's begging you. I mean, I, I can't do everything on Revelation. Um I will say this, and this is just one angle. Um, chapter 1 and verse 6 says, He has made you a kingdom and priest. That was the original commission to Israel in Exodus 19.6 that they failed in. Revelation 1.6 says, uh, The church is now that. By the way, notice the verb, He made them. They couldn't become it by themselves. That's why Israel couldn't do it. He made them in Christ to be a kingdom and priest. Chapter 5 and verse 10 repeats that. And he made them a kingdom of priests, and they rule on the earth. Present tense there. It's a textual problem, but I think it's present tense. They rule on the earth. And then, chapter 22 develops those two passages. Um, Sorry, chapter 20. And it says, Blessed, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's the priests and the kings again. Now, I would contend that uh, this millennial passage has already begun. They've already begun to be priests and kings. And uh, spiritually, and now this represents um, uh, perhaps part of the consummation of that for believers who die. This is about believers who die and reach an escalated resurrection. When we're converted, we're regenerated and we experience the first spiritual resurrection. I believe that when believers die, they, they have a further escalation of their regenerate uh, existence, that is, of their resurrection existence in heaven. It's still incomplete because they don't have their bodies. And I think that's what it's talking about. It's talking about still an intermediate thing. But for believers, this is kind of a a beginning consummation for them, even though it's not a physical consummation. last thing I will say is that the most difficult thing, from my view, it says in verse 3, that they threw the devil in 
to the pit and bound him. And so the premillennials would say, uh, oh, he's supposed to be bound on the thousand years. You're saying the church age is a thousand years, Bill? Which is what I'm saying. Uh, and, I, and I say, yeah. So, well, the devil's not bound. That's the problem for your view, isn't it? I say, yeah, it is. But, what does it mean that he's bound? It's not a physical place, it is a dimension. So, how is he bound? That's why I, what we have to ask. Is it a complete binding in verse 3? Or is it a binding in certain respects? Now, if it's a complete binding, I'm wrong. But if it's a binding in certain respects, we have to ask in what respect? Chapter 20, verse 7 tells us in what respect. Look with me. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So he's going to be released from his binding. What will he do? He'll come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured the enemy. So I believe Satan is bound. Context is king, queen, and prime minister. The, the definition of the binding here is it's a binding with respect that during the church age, the devil will not be able to mount a universal effort against the worldwide church. So that during the church age, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but at the very end, the gates of hell will almost prevail. But then fire comes down. So the devil tries to mount this attack. So I think it's a partial binding. And uh, so those are two elements that are crucial to my view on the millennium, but we can talk more. I also have a long section in both of my commentaries on that. I think so. I think so. And what's neat about that is that, remember Josephus said, on the curtain separating Holy of Holies from Holy Place was uh, uh, needlework of sun, moon, and stars. So when you tear it, that's like the old creation, figuratively, is, is being done away. We have a new creation, uh, and, and, and which are new things. And part of that is, I think, God coming out, beginning to come out in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, now, um, there, there may be some, some other elements about what that means, but I think that's at least part of um, part of what that what that means. And, and that leads immediately in one of the gospel episodes to a Gentile becoming a Christian, witnessing Christ's death. Is that accidental? You have the tearing of the curtain, God comes up and immediately extends to the Gentiles. Um, so yes, I, I think that I have a student who actually did his whole dissertation. On the curtain in the temple, and uh, he, he did, a, did a fine job. So yes, thank you for that. By the way, tearing from top to bottom, my wife does a lot of needlework. When you finish needlework and you want to redo it, you don't ever tear from top to bottom. You start at the bottom, you know where you finished. You don't. So I think it shows the supernatural aspect of it that this is God doing this. Yes, sir. If we wanted more detail on what you've talked about this morning, would we find it in your book, uh, The Temple and the Mission of the Church, rather than your commentary on Revelation? That's the best place to go. Now, I do have a two-page, single-space, small phonics cursus summarizing the book in my commentary, 
uh, at the end of my discussion on chapter 21.1 through 22.5. The book, uh, uh, The Temple of the Church's Mission, is a 400-page expansion of that two-page excursus. <laughs> now, I do have a shorter popular book of the longer book on the Temple and the Church's mission. It's called God Dwells With Us, subtitled Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. So that's a shorter book, kind of hits at the essence, but also draws out more practical application as well. Well, we've been on quite a journey. Uh, You've been riding a hermeneutical bull, and uh, I don't know if you've been able to stay... uh, on the back uh, or in the saddle, but uh, hopefully you were able to, if you did fall off, you could get back on it again and follow me. Uh, this, this is a, a challenging uh, uh, series to give that I've given today because it does involve looking so much in Scripture. So the fear is to lose people, and uh, I pray I haven't done that too much. Any other? Um, yes, yes. A timeline of the end times. Yes, I'm going to give that timeline to you. So you've got the Jews reject Jesus. And so the end time clock stops. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And that's a parenthesis age. It's a mystery age. And then at the end of that age, you have the rapture. And then... The tribulation starts after the rapture. That's the time of Israel. And then Christ comes and establishes a millennium. Now that's the timeline of the futurist dispensationalist. (laughs) My timeline is very simple. It's very simple. Okay, very simple. Church age is millennium. At the end, things get bad. More selective persecution becomes universal. And... um, the church is universally persecuted. That's the final tribulation. And then God delivers the church from its enemies. He creates a new heavens and earth, raises us up. We go through the judgment unscathed because we're in Christ, but we go through it. And, um, and with the resurrected bodies, that's how we participate in the new creation. Unbelievers are resurrected uh, uh, to judgment in the lake of fire or hell. And, uh, and then uh, that goes on for eternity. So uh, I used to hold to the first timeline, and then when I came to this timeline, I, I liked it more because it's just more simple. You know, church age, final tribulation, new heavens and earth, resurrection. But as I mentioned to you at the break, and I'll mention this to everyone, I think a really good book to get that talks about already and not yet eschatology that is that the end times begin in the first century they continue and are culminated when Christ returns the final time Anthony Hukuma The Bible and the Future Anthony Hukuma H-O-E-K-E-M-A very good book I really recommend it it's a book readable for scholars a book readable for people who aren't biblical scholars He, he has this unique ability to communicate to both unlike me so, um, at any rate. Yes? I, I do want to thank you because you really opened up 
parable, but understanding of parables to me. And really, at the risk of using an icky word, you made the temple more relevant mm. in my life, and mm. I really appreciate it. What's encouraging to me? Mm. I've succeeded a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, sir, the computer genius. Oh, sorry. You must be talking to you, Kirk. Sorry. I, uh, one of the two computer geniuses in this room, and there are probably more, but at any rate, we... Yes? Could you tell me a good source to go to to help with the... I loved the idea last night of, of the visual pictures in Revelation being a awakening to the believer. Yeah. Startle start us back to, to action. Is there a good source for us to go to to get what those do harken back to? I really do think that William Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors is a good book for that. It's also popular. My wife and I read it together devotionally over a period of time. But he does that. Um, uh, also, um, Dennis, uh, um, what's his last name, has a commentary on the book of Revelation. Who? Thank you very much. Dennis Johnson, who used to teach at Westminster West, has a commentary that's an expansion, sort of, of um, Hendrickson, and, and he should also uh, deal with that. And uh, in my shorter commentary, too, um, probably as, as you read along, um, I, I deal with that, for example. Chapter 9 is not about military helicopters, but demonic forces that we need to be aware of in the present. I just want to say thank you so much for doing exactly that of tying Revelation back to where again we see Genesis to Revelation. It's a, it's a continuous story of the Lord and His expansion. It's, a, it's amazing. <laughs> You're amazing, Bill. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, the Lord. Any other questions? I can't believe you have questions. You have questions on the book of Revelation. It's just, it's just completely startling to me. Yes, sir. Are we there Yes, there is. And someone was telling me they believed in the rapture, though they're not dispensationalists. Who was that? Who was telling me they believed in the rapture? And and so what is the rapture? Because I believe in it, and I think you do. Every time the Lord's people meet to worship Him, we are raptured with the saints of all ages gathered around the great white throne. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. For myself, the redemptive historical rapture is the final resurrection. Yes. That's when we're, we're I think that's what First Thessalonians 4 is talking about. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. That will be raised first. Then we'll be raised, if we're living, we'll be transformed. And that's that's not the rapture as the dispensationalists take it. That, I think that's the final resurrection. Uh, if you want to read my take on it, I have a commentary on the Thessalonian epistles and the uh, InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary series where I argue that. Any, any others? Um, okay, what I'd like to do is pray through a hymn that, as I understand it, I think, was composed after this person heard me give this series. I think, okay? She, she never told me, all right? But, but she was in my church many years ago. So here it is. You can't see it very well, but I'm going to read it to you. 
by grace, God builds, makes a people, claims them for His own, lifts them up through Christ the Savior, Christ the cornerstone. By grace, God builds a people, uh, His own temple pure, standing firm on one Redeemer, one foundation sure. By grace, God sends His Spirit, His Spirit and His Word, to fill and fortify this temple built on Christ the Lord. By grace, Lord, let your people stand, stand firm and sing, praises to our rock, our Savior, Christ our coming King. By grace, Lord, let your temple stretch, I love that, from shore to shore, built on Christ who comes to claim her, His forevermore. Let me just pray. Lord, Cause us to be those who love you and want to extend your presence to others to fill the earth for your glory and not ours. In Christ's name, amen.